Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. She's the founding director of the Colored Conventions Project and the co-director of the Center for Black Digital Research, professor of English, African-American Studies and History at Penn State University, senior library fellow and affiliate faculty at the University of Delaware. I'm giving all her bona fides here on the Karen Hunter Show. Let me welcome the one only P. Gabrielle Foreman, Dr. P. Gabrielle Foreman. Welcome back. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Let me introduce you to Don Calloway, my partner in power today, this Wednesday, this Wellness Wednesday. Dr. Foreman, Dr. Foreman it's a pleasure, ma'am. Peace and blessings. Yes. Um, before we get into your research and your work, I, I want to give everybody an opportunity to talk about the state of our union uh, and where we are as Americans, because I think we need to have that conversation um, deeply actually have this conversation because where do we go from here? You know, you've been studying what we've done to, to fight for justice and to come together to plan, plan for the future of black America and for America and our place in it. But I think there's fractures and fissures that will not be repaired. And I think the killing of George Floyd erupted or broke something in the firmament of America that will never be repaired. And whether or not Derek Chauvin is convicted or acquitted, what happened on May 25th, 2020 will never be repaired. What are your thoughts on that, Professor Foreman? You know, it seems to me that we come from a long history of rents and tears and violence and toxicity. Um, and that Black people have brought a lot of hope to this democracy that I'm not sure the democracy has always deserved. Um, at least in the face of continuing violence, continual rending, continually putting children who we're seeing on the stand, right, in the trial against Derek Chauvin, having to absorb the violence that isn't just done to Black people, but is done to Black communities, is done to Black families, that is a collective violence, that is a continuous violence. One of the things that I love about being a historian is that we know how deep, right, this um, this anger is of white mobs, of white violence, not our anger, right? But the anger of white communities when they are asked to share the promises and the resources um, of this country. And the convention movement itself has a lot to say about that. What does it say? And, and you know, I've been analyzing it. What do they have to be angry about? This anger is irrational, Right. And I don't know how to contend with irrational anger. As, as I watched the nine minutes and 29 seconds of that Cretan looking up into that camera with that smirk and those sunglasses, his hands in his pockets, what he was saying was, I can do anything I want and get away with it. And I know that in my spirit that I can do this. And the more y'all come around, the more I'm going to double down and wrench my knee on this man's neck. Keep talking. Keep talking. And come near me. I'm going to hit you with this pepper spray. Even try it. I'm probably going to shoot you and get away with it. There was a knowing in Derek Chauvin's energy that spoke to something that I think most of us understand about this country and it's deep, right? Which is why I hear people like, I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's going to be convicted. I get that. I get that. But what does history tell us about this fear that you talk about or this, this anger that makes no sense to me? It makes no sense. This white anger. Yes. You know, I mean, that's such um, a good question. We usually quote Frederick Douglass saying, power concedes nothing without demand. But I wanna bring Douglass into the room talking about irresponsible power 
corrupting completely, right? So he talks about this kind of question about irresponsible power. And this is what we have seen. And when you don't have to share power, when you don't have to acknowledge the fact that you don't have to share power, that you, when you don't have to acknowledge the privileges, the entitlement, the structural advantages, right, that you've had. We talk a lot about structural disadvantage. We don't talk enough about structural advantage, right? We talk about the underprivileged. We don't talk enough about the overprivileged. And I think we need to start putting adjectives in to mark the fact that people have had unfair advantage for so many years that that is structured in. And because we only talk about what has been done to communities who have been excluded, not to the communities who have been elevated, right? Then they are so, um, they are often not only surprised and shocked, but angry, right? When they were, that, that when we point out or when anyone points out that, that, that they got where they are based on a system which actually elevates their chances. This isn't an insult, it's a reality. No, it's a reality. And we talk about the generational disadvantage all the time without recognizing that the converse inherently must be true, which is the generational entitlement. And that's why you see three officers who don't feel that they have the right to intervene with a white man's entitlement to destroy even if it amounts to the, the destruction of actual life in front of them. You don't feel entitled to do or say something to disrupt that kind of generational birthright that he has, right? To, to take or destroy lives. It's fundamentally incredible to witness. And I'm so happy to hear somebody who has the academic and intellectual underpinnings to be able to put voice to some of the things that we know in our hearts, but frustrate us that we don't have the language for. You know, I mean, it's interesting too. I, I get this from being a historian, but I also get this because my grandmother ran a beauty shop in her basement, right? I also get this because my father was a poet in the black arts movement, right? So we come from a long history of organizers and eloquent articulators that do not have degrees, right? But who were nonetheless students of history. And, and, and that's because they came through the experience, right? Which gives us a deep knowledge. This is the other thing, right, Don and Karen? It seems to me that one of the things that is really important is that folks don't also want to understand that we actually, to get where we are, have to understand multiple languages that perhaps they don't. Have to have a, a multiplicity of perspectives that perhaps they don't. That those of us who actually get to the top are often smarter more prepared, right? Because we had to get through more. I am, I'm really quite tired of hearing about affirmative action producing inferiority when it actually is true that many of us come from a tradition of superiority, mm. right? Because our accomplishments are not held up by entitlement and by wealth, right? By extra tutoring, by private schools that are better. So I think that that's part of the anger too, right? Is that they actually do have to, to face black excellence and that that but, is but, not but, comfortable. Uh, uh, professor, but do they? Uh, well, let's, well, have this, good, let's have this conversation, Professor Foreman. She's here. Pierre Gabrielle Foreman is her full name. Uh, Don Calloway is here. I, I would contend because I sit here uh, and I've sit, sat many seats where I get to be one of the only persons in the room who looks like me. And early on in my career, 
they mistook my silence for acquiescence and then they learned quickly. So I can no longer hide in a room. So people watch what they say, but early on they didn't watch what they, what they would say. And I got to hear some things that, you know, a lot of times they will promote the mediocre of us in these affirmative action settings. They will put forward and even watching this trial. I remember Rachel Gentile and I'm no disrespect to her, but that that prosecutor put her on the stage after, and it is a stage is very much a stage after interviewing her and thought that she would be a good advocate for the story of Trayvon Martin spoke volumes about how they really see us or how they want to see us or how they perceive us or how they uh, want it, us to be perceived. Was, Come on now. I'm, I'm just, saying something I, right now without disrespect. Go ahead, Don. My bad, my bad. I would just, I would just briefly throw out for the Trayvon stuff. I'm not sure they wanted to win that. Right. I think they had to bring that, but I'm not sure they wanted to win. And the trial bears that out, but go ahead. But I'm saying that for, for it, it promoted a trope. She, she fit a narrative about us. And in so many ways, you know, uh, I don't know if this is true for anybody else in this room because y'all, y'all, we all move differently, but I made it my, my, my life's mission to show up a certain way in opposition to how you think you're going to see me or us, because I realize anytime you walk in a room, you're representing all black people. We don't have the luxury to just be, you know, Pierre, Gabrielle or Don or Karen. We know that we're carrying our ancestors and everybody that comes after us in every situation. And so they don't see us, as Ava DuVernay says, when they see us, they don't see us. And, and the tropes and the, the stereotypes about us, when they hire us and they check that diversity box, it's not through the lens of I actually, th- they, they're trying to do the opposite. Every now and then a few of us will slip through and go, ha ha, <laughs> you know, ha, gotcha. But for the most part, they're trying to say, see, we told you that they can't do X, Y, and Z. Because I've seen it too often. People get hired and you know damn well, you're like, are you, and even in the media, the folk that they have representing us on television, I'm, I'm saying something right now. I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it out loud with my full chest. Um, y'all on that, even, uh, let's go back to Oprah. Let's go back to Oprah for a second. I, I'm doing that, Don. I'm going to do it today. 866-801-8255. At me if you want to. At Karen Hunter. You want to tell me that they thought this woman who was facially challenged, overweight, you know, her hair wasn't quite right, admittedly represented. She made white women comfortable, white men comfortable. It was the typical, you know, um, trope of, of a certain kind of black woman that you're going to give an Oscar to for playing something and in, in going with the wind. You understand what I'm saying, right? So now you get a platform. Now she got in, ha ha, I'm very brilliant. Ha ha, you didn't see me. But I, I, I beg, because I know Sean Robinson didn't get that opportunity. I think about even on The View, you know, Star Jones to begin with. There, there are certain people that they would allow to, to represent all of us that make them feel good about who we are because it fits into a, a rubric. And in many ways, I've rejected even being on TV because I'm like, I'm not going to be the overweight black woman that's loud or whatever. So I purposely don't. I'm, I'm going to sit in a seat where I can be all of that on the radio. But I just, I feel like, you know, even those of us who get those opportunities have to reflect on why. When we look at our rappers, uh, our music people that get elevated, like, really? What does that represent about us as people? You know, when we get to control it and Barry Gordy, you think about somebody was saying the Supremes, the Four Tops, it was elevated. 
You know, everyone had to look good and be. Now it's like anybody with some drawers, you can wear your drawers on the outside with crap stains, talking all oh, kind no, of nonsense. Karen. And <laughs> I'm sorry. Ugh. You know, I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing you say is that black folks show up in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways. We walk through the door in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways. And oftentimes we wear the mask that grins and lies, right? That, you know, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar, again, we have to speak multiple languages to get where we are going. Now, are they going to elevate mediocrity? Are they going to try to dismiss excellence? Right? I mean, it depends on who the they is. White superiority as a system does that regularly, right? But at the same time, people walk through the doors with assumptions about them and then grow into positions or bring with them the brilliance that they weren't allowed to display right beforehand. And what I think I am saying as a teacher of so many students, right, at that level, is that for students to get through public schools, for students that are chronically underfunded, as opposed to those that are overfunded, even public schools that are in school districts where people have more wealth, right? And we all know that white communities have 10 times the wealth, right, that black communities have, right? So when we're talking about those numbers going into the property taxes and the school taxes, when our kids, get to college and then have a chance to actually have some of the same resources that others do, it does strike fear into the hearts of some that they actually have the kinds of multitude of skills that allows them to be brilliant. That black excellence, when it shows up, has had to go through so much. I know there is a biblical quote here about some fire, right? you know, and what it produces in relationship to iron, right? So that when we get there, there is a, a very different kind of skill set. And I'm not sure that, that, they are, that, that um, white communities who are the inheritors of white supremacist systems are necessarily trying to elevate that, as you point out, right? But at the same time, it does show up. I want to talk just a minute, Don. I want to make that pivot because now we're giving a white white communities a lot of power. And what I'd really like to talk about wait, wait, wait. is so what happens you, before in you do black that, and, communities. Hold, uh, Professor Professor Gabrielle, <laughs> yes, uh, Gabrielle Foreman, P R O F Gabrielle is where you can follow her on Twitter. Before you get there, I'm actually I'm, I was setting it up to ask this question. You know, why are we trying to? Um, be accepted in a system that was never designed for us to be here to, in the first place. And I'm talking about the workplace, academia. Yes, we got to feed our family, blah, blah, blah. But in many ways, the hoops that we jump through to be accepted, to be seen, are the very hoops set up for us to trip, fall, bust our asses, and never be anything. And those that get through, it's not the system. It's in spite of the system. It's not because of the system. And it's designed when you talk about the day, the day's a system. We were talking earlier about this, this trial. And, you know, I'm like, they're setting it up so that Chauvin takes the fall because they don't want the whole system to fall. And so he kind of has to be convicted. And if he's not convicted, America's done, in my opinion. But they, they're setting him up as this kind of like anomalous figure as opposed to him being absolutely operating the way the system was designed to operate. He just got caught on film doing it with bystanders. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is, I think what you're talking about is really important here, which is that there have always been black organizations that are black led, 
where black people are getting together and the convention movement comes out of that, right? And then when we talk about black autonomy and we talk about black excellence in relationship to black autonomy, right? And we talk about um, structural violence in relationship to um, black communities coming together to, to organize together in relationship to white supremacy, right? So th that's a very different thing than, um, and there've always been debates about this as well, than coming together in interracial groups in order to do that. And there is a seven decade history, seven decades of early black organizing that starts in 1830, moves through the early 1900s, that is about voting rights, which are on display that resonate right now in Georgia, right? Um, and throughout the country about educational access and justice, about jury rights, about labor rights, which are on display in Alabama right now as the Amazon vote is about to right, take place as well. And the convention movement brings tens of thousands of delegates and probably hundreds of thousands of black participants out in relationship to state and national conventions where they're talking to each other about these very issues. You asked at the very beginning of this, what does this have to do with today? And I love this uh, one quote from right after the Civil War. And this goes right back to January 6, 2021. They say, traitors shall not dictate or prescribe to us the terms or conditions of our citizenship, right? And now we have these voting rights, right? Or excuse me, voting exclusion, right? Acts coming over and over again in Georgia, particularly with Brian Kemp, right? And these people who have been in so many ways traitorous to democracy are trying to dictate and prescribe the terms and conditions of our citizenship. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.